Hello listeners, welcome to Help Me Buy Property Podcast. This is episode four and I have Moby here with me. We are talking about how to survive inflationary pressures and how to navigate through some of these higher prices that are happening out in the market. Welcome, Moby, on the show again. Oh, thank you for having me again today, Mohsen. And um, the topic you picked today is is of huge importance right now. And and I think um, all the topics we have been picking up have been very close to heart in terms of um, we are in the midst of these um, inflationary pressures. And uh, bank keeps sending these letters saying, we are raising your interest and your minimum payment is going from X to Y. And they're not stopping. And I don't think it's anytime soon it's going to stop. So I guess it's very important for even the um, people who are not investing right now, mom and dads who had fixed interest rate for some time, um, that's coming to an end and that will have a huge impact. I was listening to news and reading some articles and they're saying for an average household, the um, increase of monthly repayments is somewhere around $1,500 and the wages haven't kept speed with that. So I think it's a huge, huge problem, which we need to tackle. Um, I guess it will ease up, but I'm not sure when. So I guess we, we would like to talk about today how to deal with them. And I guess the first question I pose to you is, under these circumstances, is cash flow more important than the growth? Yeah, awesome. And look, I think all of that resonates so much with me, right? I think we have been, we have been taught from a very young time that cash is king, right? And so it's not really cash, it's really cash flow that, you know, we need to be focused on. So, of course, when it comes to times like today or times like inflationary times, it's always cash flow that takes more precedence than the growth. Now, when you talk about property market, let's try to understand and unpack this a bit more, right? So if you try to unpack cash flows out of things, I take two things into cash flow. Majority of the times people look at cash flow and they say, okay, yield. The rental return that people are getting, you know, naturally people think that that's what cash flow is, right? But if you can deliver returns through your own portfolio consistently, that's cash flow too, right? And so what I'm talking about, if you can manufacture consistent equity, then that's cash flow, right? From a bank's perspective, that's cash flow. You're doing it consistently, religiously, that's cash flow as well. And so if you think about growth, growth is you waiting for the market to deliver equity growth to you, you know, increase in price to you, right? And uh, what you're doing is you are basing your future on someone's willingness to pay you more. You're waiting on the market's mercy to deliver that to you. Is it bad? No, it's good. If it's done properly and if it's done accurately, using the data to your advantage, of course, you know, it makes a lot more sense. But don't just focus on a single side of the equation. Don't just focus on, oh, I'm going to go out for growth and not worry about cash flow. Okay. And so when you rephrase your question, is cash flow better than growth or is growth better than cash flow? The answer is it depends on where you are on your journey, right? Cash flow as yields is very important as a first time investor to provide shelter, to absorb shocks, to have a multi exit strategy property in your property portfolio is potentially the key to continue to building the portfolio, okay? As a first-time investor, you really get no choice, right? You know, you have to catch the growth and you have to do it safely. And the only way safe is by adding buffers, which means that you need to have 
rich cash flow so that the bank is your friend, remains your friend, while you are protecting yourself from the ma- macro environment. Yeah, that, that that is that is quite quite interesting, and and you know you bring about a few things. And I think when I was when I was um, doing my degree in business, and uh, and I was sitting in economics class, and my teacher asked, "What is the price of something?" And price of something is what someone is willing to pay at given time, and and that kind of is very important to understand. So I guess that component where people um, someone's willing to pay something, but at the same time, my my question, and I think it might be a little bit off topic, is that if I if I'm a first time investor, I have an investment property which is tenanted, um, single tenant, and you know I'm getting five hundred dollars a week rent, but when I was building that property, the repayments were three hundred fifty dollars a week, and suddenly with this inflation, now it's six hundred six hundred dollars a week. Now I am hundred dollars out of pocket bare minimum every single week um so how do we how in the times like this how do we manufacture equity and um use some creative strategies uh, in these circumstances definitely and look ultimately people buy in blue chip areas religiously to catch growth right they're paper rich they become a lot of paper rich and sometimes you know buying in these blue chip areas when you are you know, getting a yield of 4% or 3% makes sense when the interest rates are at 2%, right? You know, people would still put a tick against, oh, this is a cash flow positive property. Well, the cash flow positive nature of the property is a byproduct of interest rates. And so now you see the interest rate rising. How do you go around protecting your portfolios? Okay. And so there is a reason why they call inflation a tax without legislation, right? <laughs> and so what is really inflation, okay? And I'm going to put this in the nicest possible way that inflation is when you pay $30 for a $15 haircut, which you used to get for $10 when you had a lot of hairs, and right? So Very nicely said. <laughs> yeah, so that's exactly what inflation is, right? And so in simplest terms, when there is too much money in the system, it causes inflation, okay? And so how do you beat it and survive it? There are only literally four ways you can survive the inflationary times. And people have done this time and time again. And, you know, this comes in as a cyclical nature. But the important thing is there are two things when it comes to inflationary pressures, inflationary times. There are two things what you can do as part of your lifestyle. And there are two things or two choices that you can make through investments to, in order to protect yourself. Okay. When you talk about lifestyle choices, one easiest way to beat inflation is make more money. I can just go out and make more money, right? Absolutely. Work like a dog. Cannot you know, kill second in independence. And so for business owners, it's like hustling more, right? It's like, okay, I was hustling for 10 hours. Now I'm going to do it for 15 hours or 20 hours. And so I was generating two leads and now I'll be generating 10 leads, right? So I'm operating, 20, I'm operating 20 hours a week. So I don't know there's many hours left in the day. Is it 20 hours a week or you mean 20 hours a day? <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, you know, somebody asked me, are you, are you working hard or hardly working? And I said, hardly working. <laughs> <laughs> and so, look, ultimately, I think it's, it's not a bad thing, right? Generating more income, do a side hustle, you know, get your wife. If she's not working, get her to start working as well. <laughs> if you have kids who are, you know, over the age of 18, kick them out and get them to work generate more income, right? Simplest way possible to basically beat inflation. But of course, you know, not the most practical way. The second way 
in lifestyle choices to beat inflation is re- reduce discretionary spending. Okay, so those extra coffees, um, those you know, four subscriptions for Netflix and Kayo and Amazon Prime and all of these Disney channels that you have, you don't need them. You just need one, right? And so, but I guess I guess uh, I have to disagree with this here. You know, you um, if you do the first thing which you've mentioned, make more money and not worry about any of those things. They just literally, you know, I think there has to be a little bit of mindset shift, and I think getting out of that poverty mindset. Um, and I think uh, for us, especially, you know, we we started from scratch, both myself and you. You know, we we don't come from money. We don't have a trust fund, and nobody invested. You know, fifty thousand dollars every month. On behalf of us in S and P five hundred, so so I guess you know we 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 did have that that um, that poverty mindset, and I think that that's something we can we can talk about on a, on a different podcast than how to and some of the strategies. But it took me a very long time to overcome that. So I guess to that point, I would say just you know work hard, work smart, make a lot of money, and then everything else is just you know you don't have to worry about. It. You don't even have time to think about you know, what are you doing? But yeah, just, just make more money. So that, that that's, I'm, I'm with you on that one. hundred percent. And so the byproduct of making more money is making more investment choices, right? So the two key things that you can potentially do is one is more in relation to your offset strategy. Yeah. And so we've talked about this before and an offset strategy is a perfect strategy to bypass inflation. You know, it helps you to pay your principal place of residence faster. It helps you to uh, make quicker decision making when it you have money sitting on the side in an offset account which you have brought in the money through refinancing you have easier access to cash that you can navigate through some of these interest rate rises you're not feeling poor you're not feeling uh, you have equity sitting on the side basically making you rich and continuing you that lifestyle while there is this inflationary pressure build up but the second most important thing when it comes to investment choices while you're making more money as Grant Cardone says quite rightly, right? You save money. The only reason that you should be saving money is to invest. And so you should be creating portfolios in such a way that they are generating higher rental yields. And so the exit strategy for a lot of these properties that you're talking about, well, I was paying $400 in repayments. Now they're 600. There needs to be some way that you can push these yields higher when you feel inflationary pressure. So, and so there needs to be a trigger, a lever that you can pull quite quickly, you know, when this happens or if this happens, okay? And if you look at COVID, if you look at GFC, you look at all these soul-shattering events, like property always bounces back, okay? So why is there a reluctance in investing more, you know, in times like this, you know, because the most important thing is because people don't like gambling, right? And so when they don't see this short-term growth coming and they see doom and gloom, you know, and people talking about all of this, naturally they fall back to their poverty habits. They fall back to their, oh, I need to save more. I don't need to invest more. And so, yeah, it's it's a natural human instinct that basically happens. And so the low-risk, low-return products don't work in these markets, right? And so you buy a four-bedroom house you know in, in an anticipation that the market is going to turn back great but you need to hold these properties okay and so if you can't hold it through your own income you need to create that income through the through the property portfolio so i guess that 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 you know it just it just reminds me me and you sitting down two years ago at a friend's place and it was the thick of covid lockdown 
and you know these you know big shots calling doom and gloom and some of the you know they're saying you know covid is here it's going to decimate the property market and everyone's going to you know the the million dollar property will become you know hundred thousand dollar property and you know get your cash ready and sell everything and cash up and and i guess in, at that time you 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 said to me that you know of you know this is this is not going to happen um and i guess you know and um and you were right you were right that that if the event which was shoal shattering like covid it it had repercussions financial it had repercussion financially it had emotional um you know havoc on people but what it did to the property market it's gone up i've sold the house <laughs> during covid i made money of course i yes. didn't lose money I, I, you know i was so yes. bored during covid i just i literally sold the principal place of living for no reason and i said oh i'm cashed up you know i've got a million dollars and i'm just going to go buy a, a mansion in turek when when everything just kind of you know, going to go but nothing happened everything <laughs> kind of doubled so i'm in retrospectively i'm thinking oh i, sh- I shouldn't have sold and because you know the the acquiring journey of property um you know if you're building one acquiring one it just takes time and i guess when you don't have time you just you know you know getting that investment going it just takes a lot of time so so I guess you 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 hundred percent right, and and you know I I am guilty, and and I got a bit scared, uh, but I guess you know you got to hold your nerves and believe in bricks and mo- bricks and mortar, and they are the safest investment. 100%. Now, hundred percent. I have a question for you. So, what you said. So, do we have to do conversion on these conventional houses to granny flats or rooming houses? You know, wh- wh- what do we do? You know, how how do we how do we how do we create more cash flow yeah no definitely and so i think you are 100% right that's the major difference between a student investor and um, an investor who's new and rich in in investing right and so an student investor acts consistently versus a person who is quite new in this space or or a person who's given up into fear speculates and so Consistency is the key. Consistency is about someone who plays safe with evidence and fundamentals, who takes the risks with evidence and fundamentals, right? And so it's times like these where manufacturing equity through creative strategies or contemporary investment methods basically ensures that you have the cake and you can eat it too as well, okay? And so when you think about people investing for the first time, they think of property as going to Crown Casino or Vegas with $800. Hey, super exciting. I'm going to buy a property, right? (laughs) In reality, property is like watching a bloody paint wall dry or watching the grass grow. (laughs) Exactly to your point that it's not so much about, you know, going in quick and dirty returns. This is not about roulette, you know, roll the ball, roll the dice. This is not that, right? And so if you're fundamentally right, you will always make right decisions. Now, let me ask you this question before I answer your question. How many millionaires do we see have become wealthy by investing into savings account, right? Zero. Exactly. So, and so that's exactly what my case is, right? So I, the idea of contemporary investing is about keeping the fundamentals right, okay? And um, you don't have to do anything different. It's just... What you're doing is you're manufacturing equity rather than waiting for the market to deliver the growth to you. Okay, And so there are four different strategies that you can follow 
that can put you on a map, change your lifestyle, change the direction completely, okay? Buy and hold do not work in times like these because there is no short-term growth. And so those people who are there to, you know, get this adrenaline hit of short-term growth would not see it coming through. And so you don't get that validation coming back from the market that you have done the right decision, you've made the right choice, okay? And so in order to keep it simple, there are four different strategies that you can basically do. And one of those strategies basically answers your question about your own property as well. So the first one is quite easy. It's about renovations, okay? So you buy a dirty old ugly duckling in a nice street, you renovate it, manufacture equity, and you basically pull the money out, okay? Quite simple, quite easy, nothing out of ordinary. You don't need to do it for a million-dollar house. You don't go looking for a $2 million ugly duckling house in Turak and renovating it, right? You look for a $300,000, $500,000 house, renovate it, put a tenant in there, you know, lift the equity up, okay? The other thing is the conversions in the granny flats. And that's where your question comes in place. So the conversion, basically, the way it works, and we'll go into a lot more detail into some of these things as well, is that you buy a four-bedroom, two-bathroom house, you convert one place as a single individual self-contained unit and a three-bedroom, one-bathroom to a separate dwelling. And you rent both of them out separately. Okay, I had one client, she's done amazing. So she had a four-bedroom, two-bathroom house in Tanit and uh, on a 300-square-meter land. And I was like, wow, you like this is not an investment property, right? Why did you buy this? And she's like, well, this is a mistake. The market is crap. I can't sell it. What do I do? And I said, just do the conversion. And so she's renting out individual rooms now. Of course, it's compliant with the council, everything. And so she's gone from charging $450 per week to about $1,250 a week. Like, boom, so quickly, right? Yes, of course, it takes a bit of time and effort in management. And there are companies out there who would do full-scale management for you, right? But that's the contemporary nature of conversions that you're talking about in this market, okay? And so one of the things that I teach my clients is always buy a house, even from a buy and hold perspective, buy a house with an intention that it can be converted, with a flow plan that can be converted, which means that you don't need to convert it right now. It might be okay because, you know, the yield is at 6% and the interest rate is at 5% and it's fine. But if the interest rate goes to 8%, you have a lever to pull. And as soon as you pull that lever, boom, you know, you are now generating 9%, 10% yield on the same house because you have thought about it proactively, converting it into the future rather than doing it now. So so I guess to, to your point, and I think the new thing, which is Airbnb has changed a lot of people's life. You know, I'm, I'm going on holiday shortly and, you know, uh, my first thought, you know, going away, we're just looking on Airbnb. And so, so I guess, is that something um, converting those property to Airbnb is, is a high cash flow strategy in your mind? Well, Airbnb is is a strategy for non-recessionary times, okay? So Airbnb is actually a strategy for non-inflationary times, not inflationary times, okay? And so, of course, you are rich. You can go out on a holiday, you know, hire an Airbnb. But there is a lot of people who have canceled their holidays because they can't afford it anymore, right? Hey, Moss, you know, um, <laughs> rich or poor side, if you have a wife and if your wife tells you she needs a holiday, she needs a holiday. So the boss says, boss gets. So if you have to sell your kidney, happy if you wife, have to sell your kidney life. or two, <laughs> you do it. <laughs> and so, and so this is interesting, right? This is this is this is def- definitely interesting. So 
what happens with Airbnb? And a lot of this is backed by data that a lot of cheaper Airbnb still does okay. But when you look at exotic, exotic Airbnb where people were charging like $1,400 per night or $1,000 per night, you know, nice backyard with a swimming pool and, you know, everything under the sun, a spa, you know, there in the house and, you know, you press a button and probably a butler turns up from somewhere <laughs> as well, right? Would we all love uh, that? Yes. And so those are the houses where you would see a lot of bookings get canceled. And so it's, it's important that when you're considering Airbnb, you are considering all of these outcomes. It's a great strategy to explore, but you need to understand the location, the cost, the funding. You need to understand what sort of refurbishment that needs to go in there, the projected occupancy that the house would take, uh, the operating cost, and the room rate, which is very, very important that you're going to charge in, the, in times like this, right? And so I'll share a very quick story. And, and this is not for doomsdayers, right? I had a really good friend of mine. And I'm not going to say his name because I know he would be listening and he would be super pissed for me sharing this story. And so he has a house in Chelsea and he bought it for himself. He wanted to live there and a beautiful house, like three bedroom, two bathroom, overlooking the sea. Amazing. And he's like, oh, I'm renting in Brighton. So I'm going to move to Chelsea in literally four or five months time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to rent it out to Airbnb. And I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah. And so he rents it out. The first tenant he gets or the first renters he gets um, are four boys that completely shreds their place, like wrecks the place completely. <laughs> and so Airbnb is not helping him. He had to call the cops because they wouldn't, you know, exit the property. And so, of course, you know, there are stories like this as well. And so you need to understand that there are risks with some of these things. And so if you take that risk in a, in a high inflationary environment, which you have never done it before, you are like, you, you, you thought you were going one step ahead and you are like four steps behind and hit by a car when you went four steps behind, right? Yeah, so, and I guess while I was making the booking on every single Airbnb booking um, across different states, because we're traveling um, to Queensland, we're doing a road trip, and I had to book a few different, at different places, every single one of them had a disclaimer or no parties at home. If you are meeting other people, meet them outside. You can't bring them in. There's no parties. If you want to have a party, party have across the street or something. But so I think that's another thing as well that, you know, these youngsters and, I, and I've seen some horror stories um, and you must have seen some of the news as well. Then, you know, these 18, 19 year old kids have um, rented an Airbnb for one night or two nights and they had 300 turned up and, um, and you know, they trashed the place and, and the cops came and there was a full on ride squad coming and, you know, um, police on horses. So I guess, and, and you raised quite a few valid points and I think every, everyone who is thinking of doing that needs to have that in consideration that these are the things they need to be prepared for and have contingencies for that. Now that brings me to the My next thing. What's left? To cut you off there. Yeah. My yeah. personal preference instead of Airbnb is doing a full-scale rooming house or a co-living space or a micro-apartment, right? And so it's a next step from converted housing where you're actually building the place to accommodate four different people living in that particular place or nine different people in, say, Melbourne, where you're renting each and every individual room out separately at $300 per week and getting about $120,000, $130,000 a year in rental. And so you are intentionally building a house in such a way that every room is an ensuite, every room has a small kitchenette, 
And so you are keeping the wear and tear low, you're getting and attracting the right tenants, and you're keeping them for six months to a year, or maybe even two years, right? And so that's an intentional strategy to follow. And because there are rooming house operators involved, there are rental agreements involved, you can kick these people out quite quickly, right? Who knows, you know, if a person leaves an Airbnb, like what's stopping you from having a party there, right? You know, by the time the cop turns up, you're gone in thin air. And these are kids we are talking about, right? Yes, absolutely. So that, I guess, having said that, that leaves us not too many options. So I want to talk about and commercial projects. Should, Should we be doing commercial properties? Should we be buying more commercial properties? You know, uh, that is something even seasoned residential investors don't get into because the compliance and all of that. And I'm finding it hard. My first time I'm doing my first, you know, commercial project and it has its own, you know, same size project. If it's com- residential, it might cost you $500,000. If it's commercial, it suddenly becomes, you know, $2 million project. So, so um, you know, so I guess... What are your thoughts on that? Yes, commercial is definitely a good attraction, right? And so you talk about commercial properties and average net yield for these properties sits somewhere around 7% before repayments. Now, one view that I have on commercial properties is one should look at commercial properties only when you've exhausted all of the serviceability or the borrowing capacity, okay? Because if you have borrowing capacity available to yourself and you're going out and buying commercial property, you're leaving money on the table, okay? So you have an opportunity to use debt to your advantage and you didn't. Now, the commercial plays its part because you can acquire a commercial property even when the banks are saying no to your serviceability or the borrowing capacity, okay? Because what they'll do is they'll use the long-term lease that is in place as a proxy to the serviceability. And so all you need is cash, right? And so if your portfolio is doing great and if you have the serviceability, go buy a property, conversion houses, et cetera, because you are going to get better growth there. But if you're looking at commercial property, you should only look at those while pulling the equity out from your residential property and pushing it to commercial property because the banks won't give you the loan. They won't lend you any more money. And so commercial becomes an amazing tool where you recreate the serviceability by pushing the money back into your portfolio using commercial property as a vehicle to create more serviceability for yourself. Let's talk about a bit of pros and cons uh, for commercial properties, okay? So, of course, less overheads. You know, you don't have to worry about, you know, breakage and, you know, payments of overheads, etc. Tenants looks after pretty much everything. Um, there is long-term leases in place and so consistent cash flows. And from a vacancies perspective, that's great. And uh, you don't need the serviceability to run, yeah? But if you talk about the cons, my strong belief is that you can't just acquire one commercial property. You can't be like, oh, I'll just acquire one commercial property and that's it, right? Because the risk is a bit too much. You need to always acquire commercial property or think about always acquiring commercial property in pairs because when the vacancies happen in commercial properties, they're usually larger than residential properties. It's not like finding a normal tenant, right? So... It's not like, you know, one month you put it on realestate.com, boom, you know, another person walks in with their luggage, right? Commercial property, when a tenant leaves the next tenant, at least six months to 12 months away, okay? And so if you have bought a million dollar property, it hits you really, really hard on the cash flow, okay? Because you are up for it, man. You're on the T-cross and people are taking bow and arrow and, you know, the bank is basically there to, you know, rip out your heart, right? And so what you need to do is, 
you need to buy it in such a pair that if one's lease is coming up for a sign up or the tenant goes, there is an other lease that complements the first property to create the buffer between the two properties. Okay. And that's how you build the property portfolio when you're always buying commercial properties. Of course, there are higher LVRs, there are higher interest rates when it comes to commercial loans and, you know, generally low growth when it comes to commercial properties as well. But an amazing tool to use when it comes to building property portfolios. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, we, we're getting towards the tail end of this podcast, but uh, what I wanted to pick your brain on and have some of your uh, words of wisdom. Now, we both have seen inflation we have seen high interest rates um, right after the back of GFC and before GFC. There were some tough times um, for all of us um, and a lot of uncertainty in the financial markets. So can you tell me how did you navigate through those tough times back in the day when the interest rates were a bit higher? And, and you know, what, what are some of the strategies you used back in the day? Look, I wouldn't call it a strategy. It was just survival of the fittest at that time, right? You know, you're not savvy at that time i was young and naive and stupid and silly and idiot and so the only way i could survive was basically find more jobs and create more shifts and beg for more money and ask for more time and that was the only way that i could think especially in 2008 and 9 i'm talking about 9 and 10 right interest rates are at 8 and 8.9 percent and you know you try to be too aggressive you're a young person and you go in and buy two properties and then you add the third one without realizing holy shit i don't think that i can afford this and um, you're thinking about you're standing at a petrol station and and filling in 10 dollar worth of fuel because you can't afford 20 or 30 anymore and so you're doing like two trips of the petrol station every week you know that's the level of discretionary spend crunch that you are doing you know i, I, I remember i remember back in the day when um Back in the day, I think there used to be a day Tuesday or a Wednesday where the fuel used to be a bit cheaper. Now yes. it's kind of it's kind of changed. So we kind of waited till um, you know that day and just kind of got as much we can get through till then. And then on Tuesday or Wednesday, the fuel was cheap, and we just filled it in. I, <laughs> I remember oh, that. Oh yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. I would just push my car because you know the the, the needle is not even just below the E. My living on the, the edge. They're stabbing yeah. at you, you idiot. You know you should have thought about filling me up you know, 100, 200 is before. <laughs> Risking it, man, living on the edge, you know. And, and I think um, I remember getting some phone calls from some of my friends, you know. I might, can you please bring a jerry can? I, I ran out of fuel. Yeah, and we had those phone calls come through. 100%. 100%. I remember sitting next to a friend of mine and he was taking a right turn into the petrol station and his car stalled while going into the petrol station. And they're like, shit, you know, this is embarrassing. Let's jump out of the car and push the car to the petrol station. Those were the times, like seriously. So, and so no strategy in place, of course, you know, plays a big time when you're thinking about some of these things. And in hindsight, you know, your hindsight is a beautiful thing, right? But what I realized, especially post that time period, you know, coming up to, you know, 2012, when interest rates started to go down, I was like, okay, we need to survive this out. You know, how do I make sure that I survive this out? And as I survived this out, I realized that, it's more about ensuring that you have access to your equity in offset so that you can leave, lead a comfortable life while you are basically manufacturing your own equity, okay? Because banks' valuation don't significantly change, right? And so 
a lot of brand new properties and new properties would take a bit of hit. But if you talk about renovations and old houses, you can still pull that house out and people wouldn't be interested in buying that house because the demand is not there and you can buy it really cheap. You go in, spend your own effort, buy you know the paint and the carpets, et cetera, bring tradies in, do the work. And then, you know, revalue the property, get the bank to revalue the property. And they will usually majority of the times give you an extra 80 to $100,000 tops. Yeah. So don't overcapitalize and use that money to your advantage. You know, I strongly believe that the best investments are the investments where you don't put your own money in. Okay. You go in, you go out. And one of the, the coolest thing that I did was, I still remember I bought a property for $420,000, um, spent about uh, twenty, fifteen, or twenty thousand dollars in the renovations. So total money upfront, including ten, and I was like, you know, twelve percent LVR. Oh, I mean, like eighty-eight percent LVR, twelve percent deposit to the bank. And so, you know, going in all in on the debt, so that you know, I'm saving my own cash flow, revaluing it. So, you know, putting new carpets and a new lick of paint, revaluing it at about five hundred thirty-five thousand dollars, pulling my money out hundred thousand dollars again. But like, this is now bank's money. This is not my money, right? And so I've got my money back. The house is mine. Well, technically it's banks because bank is funding the house, but I own it. So I control the ownership of the place. And so those are the strategies that I started using more often, more frequently. But I ensured that I'm doing those in pockets where the, the rents were significantly higher. So I don't have to chip in a lot of that. You know, I'm still going interest only. I'm creating that cash flow for myself through manufacturing equity. Moss, thank you very much. Silly season is upon us. People are, you know, uh, doing silly things and good things. And, and, you know, we're finishing the year. I wish everyone have a um, great holiday period and uh, stay safe. It is tough times. They will pass and tough people will survive it. And I think it's just, you've got to have the right strategy in place and have right mentors like yourself. Thank you very much and peace out. Thank you very much, guys. Keep investing, stay safe, be kind. Adios.